One of my mentors, Sam Freshman, used to say to me all the time, Chad, some of the greatest deals of my career are the ones I didn't do. Stick around to hear some shareable stories from me about the deals I didn't do and some of the lessons I've learned from Sam and others in my career regarding the importance of discipline in real estate and in business in general. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Friends and family, welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. Early on, my father taught me that real estate is a risk management business, not an opportunity-seeking business. I've always held on to this notion in my career, and I've repeated it to others frequently. Often I'm quoting it when walking away from a deal, as I did last Thursday when I canceled a contract to buy an HEB-anchored shopping center in Carthage, Texas. With equal frequency, I quote one of my other mentors, Sam Freshman, and those words I shared with you just a minute ago. Some of the greatest deals in my career are the ones I didn't do. Let me tell you about Sam Freshman. Sam is a legend. He wrote the book on real estate syndication. No, I mean he literally wrote the book, and he would never fail to let you know. Principles of Real Estate Syndication by Samuel K. Freshman. Sam actually wrote a few books. We'll put links to the ones we can find in the bulletin board on datages.com. If you are in real estate, you absolutely must read Sam's books. Sam may be the most conservative real estate investor I've ever met. He's never overpaid for anything in his life. I guarantee it. He was successful in Southern California, and then when he stopped finding deals that fit his rigid criteria for investment, he migrated a lot of his business to Reno, Nevada where he could still find retail shopping centers and apartment buildings that he could buy for a steal. And when he stopped finding things he could buy at the right price, he became a lender, making low-risk private loans with robust returns to him and an opportunity to acquire the underlying real estate in a default event under what is often called a loan-to-own strategy. For about 10 years, every time I saw Sam, he'd say, Chad, bring me something we can work on together. Bring me some deals. And I did. There were several times I put things in front of Sam that we could work on together, but nothing stuck. Nothing met his rigorous criteria. If the best deals in Sam's career were the ones he didn't do, then he had a lot of amazing deals. To start off today's episode, let me share with you two off-the-wall stories about the deals I didn't do in my career. For no particularly good reason, I'm going to tell those stories in reverse chronological order. Perhaps I'm adhering to the notion that all stories get better with time. As memories become foggy, stories tend to become legends shrouded in that fog. So in that way, I can save the best, most legendary story for last. 
I'll start with a story that happened just last year. Because this story involves a litigation matter, I'm simply going to say that it takes place in small town, big state, USA. A few years ago, I started a research effort evaluating small town because I knew there was a development boom coming. I looked at major residential developments, geographic features, there's a river that divides this small town, and most importantly, roadway infrastructure. I identified what to me was the obvious location for major retail development in small town big state at one of the new interchanges being constructed along the freeway. I set out an ambitious program to acquire and assemble land for development. There are about eight parcels of interest to me in total. Today, I own two of them. But this story is about one that I didn't buy, which was located at the hard corner of the interchange. Almost. We'll come back to that in a minute. The owner of the property was a foreign software developer who is a really smart guy, much smarter than everyone else. I put his land under contract for a reasonable price, and we continued with the assemblage and the pursuit of the development. Then something rather incredible happened. Suddenly, small town big state became billionaire's row. The founder of Tito's Vodka bought a massive ranch of several thousand acres north of our site by about two miles. And this boring little company bought 200 acres less than a mile up the road. What boring little company am I talking about? The boring company. Elon Musk's Hyperloop Construction Company. Our seller in small town big state suddenly decided he was no longer a seller. He refused to honor our contract. Closing day came, and he refused to sign the deed. So we had to file a suit for specific performance, which is basically an action in court to enforce a contract. This process drug on for two years through COVID, when all of the courts were closed, and then continued to drag while there was a massive backlog of cases. The final stage of a process like that is mandatory settlement discussions with a mediator. We traveled to the office of the seller's attorney, and we were seated in conference rooms on opposite sides of the office. I, the plaintiff, with my attorney on one end of the building, and the seller as the defendant on the other end of the building. To open the settlement discussion, which I saw as pointless because I knew the defendant was entirely unwilling to sell us the property, I reiterated our established position that we were willing to buy the property for our original contract price less our legal fees, which by this time were sizable. The defendant came back with a preposterous figure for what he believed the property was worth. Initially, I just laughed. Then an idea came to me. Maybe this wasn't a hopeless settlement process at all. Maybe he had just opened the door and given me the answer. As our next settlement offer, I offered to sell him the property for the figure he had quoted us. Essentially, he could pay me the difference between his perceived value of the site and my established purchase price under the contract. He came back with a counterproposal to pay me a number above my contract price. He had taken the bait. I had shifted the paradigm, and now it was just a matter of letting the negotiation play out. Over the course of the rest of the day, we went back and forth, and I wore him down. Eventually, he would end up buying the land out of contract for a price tag substantially greater than my original purchase price. I had managed to sell the defendant his own land and at a premium. And because he was so smart, here's what he didn't take time to learn. 
When the new roadway came in, the alignment had shifted such that his property no longer had direct access to the road. It was landlocked. And the only way to get that access was through the property adjacent to his. And those people wanted more than double what the defendant's property was worth. That's why I said the property was almost at the hard corner. And further, if anyone wants to assemble a large tract of land to develop a commercial project in this location, guess what? I still own two pieces of the overall assemblage. And the defendant paid me more than the cost of those two parcels combined. That was the best deal I've ever not done. As I said, the next story comes from much earlier in my career. I'll title this story, Why I Don't Do Business in Oakland. Back in the mid-2000s, I was a Walgreens developer in many parts of the country. Florida, North Carolina, Northern California, and Alaska. While I was developing for Walgreens in NorCal... I was invited by the real estate manager to evaluate deals in Oakland. Based upon an analysis of demographics and trade areas, there was an opportunity to develop four or five additional Walgreens stores in Oakland, and Walgreens was definitively falling behind on their store counts. It presented a great opportunity. I knew it was difficult to work in Oakland, but I'd worked in some pretty tough jurisdictions from a development perspective, such as Redondo Beach and Rancho Palos Verdes in SoCal, and the People's Republic of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I wasn't ready. One day, while in pursuit of an urban development project for Walgreens in Northeast Oakland, I was invited by the city councilman for the district to go meet with a community association. I was directed to a local church, and I walked into the conference room in the meeting hall behind the church. I can still picture it vividly. A nondescript, all-white building in an all-black neighborhood. The conference room was simple. A long, dark wooden table from circa 1960 stretched across the indoor-outdoor quality maroon-colored carpeting and was surrounded by a dozen mostly matching chairs that had been finely machine-crafted in 1975. I was greeted by the pastor, who was a stout, commanding presence with fiery eyes, sitting across the table, and a kind, soft-spoken woman who offered me a glass of water before leaving the room. Sitting at the head of the table was the head of the community association, wearing a slick black suit with a faint pinstripe. He had a gaunt, severe face that was darker than dark-skinned and sunken eyes that were exaggerated by sharp cheekbones. He didn't get up when I walked in. He remained seated and tilted his head slightly to acknowledge my presence. The only thing I could think of when I saw him and felt his presence in the room was, I'm about to meet with Omar from The Wire. The pastor made brief introductions, told me how pleased he was that I was there to meet with them and to invest in the local community, and he proceeded to get up and leave. He left me there alone, sitting with Omar. That wasn't actually his name. This didn't feel right. Omar was silent for a bit. Whether the silence was for dramatic effect or intimidation didn't matter. It accomplished both. Finally, Omar spoke. He explained to me his role in the community association and how active the community association was in taking care of the neighborhood. There was something in the way he said, taking care of, that told me that the community association was a euphemism for gang. He went on to talk to me about other development projects going on in the neighborhood. He explained the following rules of the neighborhood to me. It's not my problem that another developer in the area had the generators and tools stolen from his project because that developer didn't have my people working on his project. 
And it isn't my problem that the same developer had to deal with vandalism and damage to the property because that developer didn't have my people working on that project. And it wasn't my problem that the general contractor on the project may have been assaulted with a wrench because that contractor didn't have my people working on that project. I quickly began to realize that the meeting had transitioned from intimidation to physical threats. I listened silently and politely to the rest of Omar's neighborhood stories, thanked him for his time, shook his hand. It was more of a firm message than a handshake, and I excused myself. As soon as I got in my car, I called the city councilman who had arranged the meeting. I thanked him gratefully for the opportunity, and I informed him that regrettably, I would not be able to proceed with the development in his district. I drove to the airport, got on the next Southwest flight back to SoCal, and I never worked on behalf of Walgreens in Oakland again. Now, these may be particularly colorful stories from my own experience, but I know I'm not alone. Just like Sam and me, I know that many of you and the friends and family have had deals not done, roads not taken, opportunities not pursued. And when you look back, I bet many of those were good decisions on your part. Here's a story submitted by one member of the friends and family, Elliot Liebson. Elliot and I worked together on a public-private partnership redevelopment project that I pursued in Ferguson, Missouri. Elliot was the economic development and planning director for Ferguson at that time, and I can attest that he's one of the most proactive and creative individuals with whom I've ever worked in such a position. Had it not been for Elliot's leadership in advancing the partnership between the city and Aventine on that project, it would have never happened. Here's the story that Elliot shared with Dadages of his deal not done. In 2002, I worked for a suburb of St. Louis in the same role I had when we worked together, planning and development. One of the businesses I tried to recruit was the original House of Pancakes, not IHOP, mind you. I had eaten in their Chicago stores for years, so I knew they were a good fit for my community. Their real estate rep told me, well, we like your site, but we don't have a franchisee. Are you interested? I thought about it for a long weekend. On the one hand, I knew exactly where they should go, and I would have ended up potentially making a great deal of money. On the other hand, I would have been working 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. seven days a week for several years to do it. I decided not to take him up on the offer, and while I do not have the fortune, I have had a life instead. I did not criticize anyone who would choose the other path. It simply wasn't for me. Well done, Elliot. I commend you for your self-awareness and understanding your priorities. The downside of doing a particular deal is not always purely financial. There can be lifestyle consequences. Elliot's enlightened decision-making brings to my mind a dadage which will be the topic of a future episode. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you can. When I say this, people often ask me, don't you mean just because you can do something doesn't mean you should? I know that is the more common expression, but I'm not a common expression kind of host. I do, in fact, mean just because you can doesn't mean you can. As I said, I'll devote an entire episode to this apparent contradiction, but for now, I'll explain it like this. Often, we as human beings are capable of extending ourselves beyond our limits, but sometimes sustaining an effort that is so far from our center of being can have unforeseen and serious consequences on a long-term basis. Again, I appreciate Elliot sharing his story with the friends and family, and I encourage all of you to keep the discussion going. Check out our socials for ongoing dialogue and discussion on this topic, or drop me a note, chad at datages.com. 
In a previous episode of this podcast, I shared the dadage, the distance between success and failure in my career has been measured by one variable, the ability to create a sense of urgency. In that episode, I discussed the importance of a particular tactic in negotiations, the takeaway. Do you recall what the takeaway is? It's a powerful card you can play in a negotiation where you say that you're ready and willing to walk away from a deal if you can't achieve X, Y, or Z. You can't fake the takeaway. You actually do have to be ready to walk away in such a situation. How is this relevant to today's topic? I look at it this way. Critical business decision-making, like trying to decide whether to pursue a deal or kill it, at times is like negotiating with yourself. Trust me, I have these kinds of negotiations going on in my mind all the time, often for days at a time. Sometimes it's like a Lincoln-Douglas debate going on in there. And what's important to remember in this internal negotiation process is that you must be willing to deny yourself the deal at hand in order to preserve your potential for greater long-term success. You have to be ready to walk away. Now, let me talk about the counterpoint to everything I've shared so far today. Of course, there's a counterpoint. Here it is. There is a limit to the number of deals you don't do. It is very possible to go broke not doing deals. And while today I've been advocating the importance of knowing when not to do deals, here's an interesting observation about my own career track record. I've never lost money on a deal that I did, not a penny of equity or debt. None of my money, none of my investors' money, none of the bank's money. Trust me, there are some deals on which we've had to fight to keep our chin above the bar, but we've always managed to do so. But I've lost millions of dollars collectively across my career on deals that died. The deal's not done. How do you lose money not doing a deal? Through two destructive forces, overhead and pursuit costs. Here's one that was very costly for me personally. It occurred in the recovery from the global financial crisis, or GFC, circa 2010. I actually managed to preserve my business and my income quite well through the GFC, But coming out of that turbulent time, the way business was done in the commercial real estate world changed dramatically. What had been my greatest asset, strong relationships with retail tenants, became my greatest point of vulnerability. Retailers had become unreliable. You could not trust direction and guidance you were receiving from key relationships and retail organizations because the factors that impacted real estate strategy and deal-making were operating many levels above the real estate dealmakers, and numerous outside considerations that had nothing to do with real estate were driving those decisions. Here's a good example that took place in what is now my home, North Texas. In 2010, I built a relationship with 7-Eleven. You may not realize it, but 7-Eleven is owned by a Japanese conglomerate named, hang on while I butcher this for you, Kabushiki Geisha Seibun Ando Ai Horodingusu, which means seven and I. Another interesting fact, the U.S. headquarters for 7-Eleven is here in Dallas, and it actually houses what is by far the best sushi restaurant in Texas, Te'an. The way I heard the story is that the seven and I executives from Japan actually gave Te'an an amazing location in their building for free so they can have great sushi when they're here in the U.S. for work. Anyway, Back to 2010, I built a relationship with the real estate director for 7-Eleven and the vice president of real estate for the company. 
They both identified for me an objective of conquering their own backyard. They were underrepresented in North Texas between Dallas and the Oklahoma border. They invited us to work for them as a preferred developer, which I'd been throughout my career, and to start putting deals together in that territory. They told us they could do over 25 deals in the region. Ambitious, but a great opportunity. At the time, I was based in Southern California, and I put my team to work. And we worked hard. We devoted three acquisitions team members to the 7-Eleven program, and we achieved results. In a matter of a few months, we had put together eight deals in the territory, and we were advancing them forward concurrently through the due diligence, design, and entitlement process, while also advancing through the internal approval and lease execution process with 7-Eleven. This was our standard playbook. And then things got quiet one day, really quiet. We noticed the 7-Eleven leadership stopped responding to our inquiries, and progress on the program slowed dramatically. I went to Dallas to meet with them in person, and I was informed that senior management from Japan had decided to switch strategies for the company. They no longer wanted to grow organically through store development. They wanted to grow by acquisition. In North Texas and Oklahoma, they had identified three or four smaller operators to buy and pick up multiple locations. And they killed every single ground-up development deal in the pipeline. This included all eight of our deals. And all of our leases were either unsigned or in a contingency period during which the tenant had the right to cancel. So they did. We lost non-refundable land deposits, money spent on due diligence studies, legal fees, design consultant fees, and all of our internal staff overhead. All in all, it added up to about $2.1 million. That deal almost broke me. It compelled me to sell several quality real estate assets to pay off the sunk costs of the program. It also compelled me to change my approach to business. I became even more disciplined with regard to project costs during the development of deals. I became far more jaded when it comes to trusting retail clients. And this experience was the final catalyst in my total commitment to eliminating fixed overhead in my organization. It was as a result of this blow to my organization that I set myself on a path to close all of my offices across the country and to eliminate all W-2 employees and convert to a 100% independent consulting model for Aventine. I'll cover this structure in more detail in a future episode of Datages. Look out for it. It will be tied to this datage. Responsibility is a luxury. Accountability is the price you pay for it. While others have not been so dramatic, experiences like the one with 7-Eleven have littered the landscape of my career. Although the 7-Eleven example is certainly the most costly and most impactful, it really stung, and it took a while to overcome both financially and emotionally. Even today, as I drive through suburban and rural communities in North Texas like Melissa, Anna, and Salina, which are all within 20 minutes of my home, I have a slight pang that feels like the lingering remnants of defeat. The upside is I know that the lessons I've learned and relearned and relearned regarding discipline have saved my company and saved my ass many times over, particularly during COVID and during the tumultuous times that have followed the pandemic when being lean and mean has allowed us to survive. And I can tell you two things. A, these difficult decisions never go away. If you run a company or work in an executive position responsible for critical strategic decisions, you can't escape these challenges. And B, there's never an obvious answer. 
or a foolproof process designed to make the right decision. I don't have that kind of wisdom for you, but I can at least give you a few pointers to serve as guideposts. One, growth makes up for a lot of mistakes. In real estate in particular, but for many other businesses as well, investing your time in pursuit of opportunities in a growing sector, market, or economy is a safer bet than working against zero or negative growth. As my father Mark would say, always go back to the numbers. That's number two. Don't try to justify a deal that you can't underwrite from a pro forma perspective. Number three, fill the plate, empty the plate. Work a lot of deals to find the deals that work. Kill fast and move on. My ratio of deals under evaluation versus those actually pursued used to be about five to one. Today, it's closer to 20 to one. Number four, be allergic to overhead. Keep your fixed costs contained as much as you can so you can be using your money toward pursuing actual deals. Number five, there is strength in numbers. I make better decisions when I have good partners. This is what a good partnership can bring. And if you don't have a partner, find someone you can trust as an advisor or mentor. Just talking through your challenges and tough decisions can often reveal an answer you didn't even know was already inside of you. As I said, these approaches can certainly help, but they don't give you the answers. For that, you'll just have to trust yourself. But if you're facing difficult business strategy decisions of this nature, I can offer you something else. Empathy. I know how you feel. I know it's difficult. And I'm still going through it. If you've followed Datages closely, you know that I'm investing a lot of time and energy in pursuing opportunities in Central and Eastern Europe with a joint venture partner based in Poland, White Star Real Estate. I've been working with my respected colleague, Brian Patterson, and his team at White Star now for about seven months, and I've traveled to Europe several times. We have cultivated a handful of promising opportunities, and we've identified hundreds of millions of dollars worth of potential retail development opportunities. This opportunity is clear and demonstrable. The market is ready. The competition is limited. The White Star platform is robust and compelling. But here's the disconnect. The deal sizes are too small for White Star to pursue cost-effectively within their platform, and my partner Brian has come to me with a proposal to allow me to utilize his resources at White Star if I take on a personal commitment to the overhead devoted to the retail development program. His proposal is reasonable and fair, and if you locked me in a room and asked me to come up with a fair proposal on my own, I probably would have arrived at a similar conclusion. However, fair doesn't always mean wise. The question I face is whether in an uncertain time, when deals are the most expensive they have ever been, due to cost of construction and cost of financing, and when things are taking longer than ever, the average deal cycle in Poland is likely to be three years, can I justify making a gamble through the commitment to overhead and pursuit costs required to realize the opportunity? Essentially, the proposition is something like this. I will invest every penny I have knowing that it will not be enough, and I will run out of money at some point and need to bring in an unknown equity partner and will give up a significant percentage of ownership of these deals after I've taken all of the upfront risk to advance these deals to that point. Sounds amazing, right? It's a lot to face as I'm quickly moving much closer to age 50 than I am to 40. So what do I do? I honestly don't know. I'm just going to be open and transparent with my partner, Brian, and with the people around me that I've come to trust as my advisors, and I will work the process that leads to a decision, whether that decision is made by me or for me. 
I'm at peace with that much. And if all else fails, I'll just follow the advice of my 16-year-old son, Camden, who has recently become an expert card player, at least according to him. His advice is this. Dad, 99% of gamblers walk away right before they hit it big. And there's your dad joke for today. Or son joke, as the case may be. Thank you for listening, friends and family. It has been important for me to share. And today, you need no reminder of this. Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.